So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, May the 5th. That's right, Cinco de Mayo. I had to look that up today to see what the uh, significance of that was. And it has something to do with a major conflict that was won by the Mexicans against the French. Who knew? Look it up. Super interesting. This is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 207. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. Temperature outside, pretty nice. 59 degrees Fahrenheit, partly cloudy. That is uh, 15 degrees Celsius, low winds too. So it's fantastic for photography and stuff, or just going out and listening to things. Hopefully your neighbors don't start mowing the minute you sit down next to your bees to hear how the bees sound. So I hope you enjoy the opening. The cover image deals with this new version of uh, honeybees and their maladies from the Penn State Extension Office. It's been revised by Dr. Robin Underwood, Extension Director in Apiculture at Penn State. So by the way, the reason that I put that up there before we get started is that uh, a lot of people are gonna be looking at their hives. They're gonna be taking things apart. You're gonna be doing some troubleshooting. You wanna see what happened. Why did they die? Why aren't they making it? Or maybe you're doing your very first inspections and uh, you're looking at some brood situations and you don't know what uh, you're looking at and your mentor is missing in action because they're taking care of their own stuff. There's photos of honeybees and their maladies. Very well written here. What to look for, what the symptoms will be. If you're a visual learner, this is going to help you out a lot. This belongs in your bee kit, by the way, that you put together when you go out into your apiary. What else is going on? Uh, this may not be a long one today because I need to get out my own apiary. It's already 1 p.m. that I'm making this and of course you'll be seeing it later on this evening. But uh, there's some very important stuff going on because we had some strange weather situations here. In fact, we had the first snowfall in May since 1989 according to our weather people here. And I went out and videoed it, of course, snow on blossoms and things like that. But it did something to our bees, and that's a tie-in for our very first question of the day. If you want to know what we're going to talk about in this video, please look down in the video description, and all the topics are listed in order. You'll also find some very cool links taking you to further information about some of the topics. And if there's something that we're selling, people really don't like it when I sell things. Um, if there's something that we're selling down there, the link to that will be down there too. So what do I want you to buy? I get nothing for it, but I want you to get these from Penn State. The last time I mentioned them, guess what? They went out of stock right away. So now they're back in stock. That's good news. Okay, the very first question, and I made it the first question because it's really important. And uh, I already responded to this individual because I know exactly what happened. And that's why I mentioned that we've had recent snow and rain and really cold temps. Unseasonably cold temps. What did that do to your bees? kept them inside at a critical time. There are wildflowers all over the landscape right now and the bees can forage for them if the weather permits and if it doesn't, what is going on? I won't spoil it here. Let me get right into it. The first question. This comes from uh, Central Ohio and uh, this is from Robert. So I live in Ohio. I currently have 40 colonies. Do single hive management. All brood chambers are eight frame deeps, medium honey supers. I've been raising bees for four to five seasons. 
Current temps are 40 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit, so pretty similar to what we have right here, which is why I think I know exactly what's going on. See if you agree with me. We have hard winters, but not Canadian winters. Sorry, Ian, not as tough as what you're going through. I'm very familiar with seeing starvouts. Our honey flow started around April 15th, but then we had a cold spell, and we we're just coming out of it. I did some 50-50 splits. Mostly equalize all the colonies in the apiary on or around April 12th. So I'm going to pause right there. People that were asking me if this is a good time to split, I said no because the drones aren't out yet. And we don't know what the weather is going to do. But he went ahead. I went out last week, checked for swarm cells, and balanced anything that looked too large. But that was only about 10%. I think that covers it. Now the question. And this is very important. I hope you're paying close attention and why I want to get this out right away, by the way, for those of you who are in this area or had the storm system pass through, which is a huge swath of beekeepers here. Today, I plan to put on the first honey supers of the year. I noticed outside one of my largest hives. That's key too. Large hive, high population. A pile of bees inside virtually all are dead but a very small cluster with last year's queen. So dead bees on the bottom board, small cluster around the queen. I assume they must have been sprayed. I contacted the farmer and he said he did not spray. When I went back through the photos, I noticed a lot of bees head first in cells. That's key. These are things to watch for and I'm gonna explain more in a minute which is what I would expect to see if they were starving, but we are in a nectar flow. And this is a huge cluster of forager bees. It did rain the past two days and a little cool the previous days, highs around 40 to 50 Fahrenheit. Bottom line, I was wondering if this looks like poisoning or does it look like starvation? I'm going to take syrup over in the morning. Either way, I just thought I might ask to see if there is something else I should be looking for in your experience. Just doesn't feel like a typical poisoning, only due to the fact that they are head first in all the cells and the pile of 20,000 zombies, zombie bees. I just haven't heard of colony starving during a nectar flow. All the other hives are plugging out the brood chambers, any thoughts or things to look for. I would like to try a newspaper combined tomorrow with a queenless hive, if you agree. It's likely just starvation or acute poisoning, not some type of disease or something that would harm the other colony. Which is one of the reasons I'm reaching out. Okay, I think I have the answer. See if you guys agree with this. I'm going to add some information on things that you need to look for. And this is the reason why I want to get this video out really fast. Because a lot of you north of me and east of me are experiencing this right now. And you need to know. Because I observed it here as well. And here's what you're looking for. You know, you're going along and you're looking at your other colonies. And everything is going great because we had a warm-up yesterday. Nothing like today. Today is great. Yesterday was a little bit of warm-up and all the landing boards were active. You saw that in the opening sequences of today's video. And uh, what I noticed was I was going along looking at landing boards and one of them that should be very active. In fact, it's my strongest observation beehive. 
the highest populated hive, and it was the one that was in the background over my last couple of uh, Q&As where I did them out in the uh, Bee Academy building. So the thing is, they had their top three frames uh, full of capped honey, but they're also brooding up full frames of brood. So this is a really hopping colony of bees. Everything is healthy. They came through winter without any supplemental feeding whatsoever. But here's what happened. I walked up and I started looking at their landing board because I was videoing stuff, looking for opening sequences for today's Q&A. And there's like one or two bees coming out when there should have been 30, 40, or 50 bees coming and going and pollen should have been coming through at a rapid pace and it wasn't. And the bees that were coming out on the landing board were trying to take off, but they were just kind of bombing right to the grass, right in front of the hive. They didn't even have the energy to fly. And then I look at the ground and I always tell people when you're looking at your hives and we're assessing colony health, we want to look at the ground in front of your hive. Are there bees on the ground? If there are, what's their behavior? And this is key to what I'm about to tell you was wrong with the observation hive. So they're coming out, they're not looking strong, but there's other behavior they are not doing that would indicate a poisoning. My first thought is, oh man, these guys have gotten into something and they've been poisoned. Look, they're just hanging out like they have zero energy at the entrance and they're barely dragging themselves out, which looks like the bees are trying to get themselves out of the colony because they're dying because there must be some disease. And then they're just dragging themselves off the landing board and uh, falling off into the grass. And then I did videos to show all of their behaviors because what a great opportunity to teach. And if you stay on past the end of today's video, uh, beyond the end of the Q&A, you're going to see the video sequences that I'm describing right now, which shows the jeopardy that that colony was in. And so I went inside. It's an observation. I thank goodness I didn't have to pull it apart. I just need to look inside and see what's going on there. Some of the bees had their tongues out, but you know what was missing from the behavior of the bees on the landing board and on the grass? If they'd been poisoned, it would seem disoriented. In other words, sometimes bees, when they're exposed to a poison or some kind of toxin, they'll turn in circles, like they lose their ability to navigate. And they weren't doing that. These bees were actually trying to go somewhere. They just didn't have the energy to do it. The bees on the ground often tremble when they've been exposed to a toxin. And when they die, their tongues are fully extended. They're in complete distress. So we have to rule out other things too. Look for injury to the bee. In other words, are they flying out and falling off because their wings aren't fully formed? Do they have deformed wing virus? Do they seem disoriented? Are they vibrating or trembling? They were not doing any of those things. They're just on the ground without the energy to even climb blades of grass and fly away. So we get inside pulled the cover off of the observation hive, and I took some pictures, so hopefully I'll add those in too. But this could be part of a presentation that I'm about to give next weekend in Ohio. Um, because it's important when we have weather dynamics like this. When I opened it up, guess what they had done? They all clustered at the top of the observation hive. The bottom of the observation hive had about an inch of dead bees on it. Dead and dying. So in other words, they're still moving, they just didn't have the energy to get themselves out of the hive. And I'm looking at the cells. This is key to understanding what's going on. There's a lot of brood on those frames, right? Brood requires warmth and warmth requires energy from the bees, which means that they have to consume the honey and nectar that they have stored. 
The smaller colonies didn't go through this problem, and the reason is their demands on their stored honey and nectar are not as high as these largely populated colonies. So without the ability to get out and get other resources, and remember, this is an observation hive that I've not fed. That's key here. So um, they were all clustered at the top, not moving much. And those that were moving were having troubles getting their footing. And uh, again, key, not trembling. They were not uh, discharging fecal matter inside the hive, which is another indicator potentially of a disease in the hive. They didn't have any of that, just no energy, falling to the bottom. And they're clustered at the top. Why? Because that's where the worker brood is. So they're using their last bits of energy to keep the worker brood warm. What brood did they abandon that was in that colony? The drones. The drones were at the bottom. The whole bottom frame was drones. And they left them in favor of the worker brood, which is just a survival tactic for these bees when they don't have the nectar, when they don't have carbohydrates necessary to fuel their thorax muscles so that they can generate heat and keep the cluster and the brood alive. So of course the queen's in the middle of all that. The queen would be the very last bee inside the hive that dies because they will give themselves up completely all of their resources to sustain the queen and that's instinct, that's the future of the colony. Now the good news is, right? When I started looking that over and we started looking at the cells, and this is what I recommend you look at too when you have conditions like this with these large colonies. Is there open brood? Does it look dry? Is there any more capped honey on any of the cells that you can see? What happened to the open cells that had nectar in them where you can shine a flashlight on it would be shiny surfaces in there. Are those cells dry now? And in this case, they were. So what happened was, over that three-day period where we had those cold days and the rain, all these combinations of weather factors that kept your bees from foraging, because there's no nectar out there, the dandelions are out there, but we need temperatures warm enough for them to fly out and exploit those. And we get into discussions about the value of dandelions because they have an incomplete um, you know, amino acid profile to fulfill what the bees need for brooding, but don't underestimate the power of dandelions to provide nectar. And that's what you'll see at the end of this video today is the bees working the dandelions for pollen, but primarily for a nectar source. And the nectar yields are high because we've had a lot of rain. So that's a benefit, but if they don't fly, they can't do it. This is the problem. How quickly did these bees turn around? Now the observation hives are equipped for feeding. They have two feeding stations at the top of the hive. So I went out, I mixed up one-to-one -one sugar syrup. Here's why this is a can't-fail move. Uh, if they were poisoned, you're not hurting them anymore by adding on syrup. If they weren't poisoned and it's starvation and you don't add on syrup, they're done. They just can't do what they need to do. Or they're profoundly set back. So what I did was I put one-to-one -one sugar syrup out there and I added Hive Alive, the liquid, at uh, half a teaspoon per pint. And I put three pints on, so one and a half teaspoons. And uh, mixed that up really good, put that on the hive. In less than two hours, they had spread out over the entire hive. And here's what they were doing, which was really interesting. They were going to those inverted jars on the tops of the observation hive. 
and they were feeding one another right away. And you could see bubbles going up through these jars. And uh, it's like they sent a message out through the rest of the hive that they have resources all of a sudden. And you understand that the condition that they were in, the level of starvation that they were at, they could not fly and forage and get back and restore the colony. So here's a case where syrup feeding on that hive saved it. It would have died. If this were a satellite apiary and uh, we weren't observing these things, if we weren't looking at landing boards and noticing these differences, you can lose your strongest colonies this time of year to starvation when and if you have a weather event that prevents them from getting out and getting other nectar. Their pollen loads were still good. They couldn't get nectar and that was critical for their energy. And so it was demonstrated very well that all they needed was sugar syrup. All they needed was carbohydrates. And so even this morning I was out there, looked at them, and they're, once again, they are flying and uh, outflying their neighboring um, observation hives, because there's three in that building. But all they needed was sugar syrup. That's it. So they weren't poisoned, and they didn't have any of the indicators of being poisoned that I described. The trembling, the tongues out, the disoriented uh, behavior, and they just didn't have the energy to fly. So here's what I'm telling you, and that's why today this is my very first um, topic that I'm going to discuss, because if you're watching this right now and it's still daylight, and it's still warm out there, please go to your backyard apiary and look at all the landing boards and see, because you've likely had the same weather conditions that we have here. And if you've got a colony that should be flying heavy and isn't, check their syrup load and make sure that you can give them some boost right now. You could save that colony and they recover incredibly fast. So that's the information that I gave and I hope I get a good feedback from Robert. It only happens because it's a large colony and their resources get zapped super fast because they had the largest brood. So starting right off, if you're watching right now, you think you've got that, stop right there, pause this video and get out in your apiary and see what's going on. You might have a colony that could be saved very easily and inexpensively. And then they're foraging and they're getting their own stuff because guess what? This whole weekend, uh, it's gonna be warm here in the state of Pennsylvania, Northeastern United States. And uh, next week, 70s. Look for the plan of the week coming up at the end of today because I hope you're ready. There are plenty of drones out there and there's gonna be some swarming. Okay, question number two comes from Timothy. In uh, San Francisco, California, you allow your observation hives to swarm. Would you allow colonies in the observation hives to collapse in order to observe the process? Maybe after a while, even introduce a swarm or package into the now empty hive to observe them cleaning out and restoring the comb. Okay, now that's an interesting question and I had that opportunity to do that now. I could have allowed the strongest observation hive colony in that building, I could have allowed them just to collapse. But I uh, can't bring myself to do it for educational purposes. It's enough to know uh, what the potential cause of collapse could have been. And uh, I don't believe in allowing something to die out if you have the means to keep it alive and restore health, uh, just to see what's going to happen. Now. This is what happens to feral colonies that die out. 
when there's bee trees and things like that, uh, they die out and the cycle is pretty obvious and pretty standard. Uh, they might not be without bees in that tree for very long. So if they died out in the wintertime, what's happening in spring? If there's any resources left, they're, they're uh, being robbed and their nectar resources and their honey, their stored honey is being removed. And then what goes in after that? And this is where wax moths uh, serve their purpose. Wax moths fly in there, they lay their eggs. Their larvae, which are the wax worms, will consume that dirty old comb that's been in there for who knows how long. And they'll turn it to dust and then those wax worms will crawl out and then they'll go and complete their life cycle so actually they're a great disposal team and now we have a cavity that's probably propolized that probably has some remnants of uh, wax there too and then so what's happening now swarms are zipping around looking for places to live swarm scouts so if you don't have your swarm traps out yet and you're in this part of the country put them out People in the south, of course, are already collecting swarms. Here, I've not seen a single swarm yet, but I know it's going to happen. When's it going to happen? Probably tomorrow. Not even kidding. I guarantee you, somebody on social media is going to say, hey, got a swarm. Uh, have a swarm. Put the word out, too, if you're on Facebook or whatever you're on. Let people know what a swarm looks like, not to kill it, and that you'll be there to collect it. And if you don't need it, you can help a friend have a colony. But no, I would not uh, just let the observation hive collapse for educational purposes. But uh, we know the cycle is pretty well established. I don't think there's a lot to be gained by uh, seeing them all die out completely. And dead bees on the bottom without a colony that's active in it uh, smell like a dead animal. And uh, I see no reason to put a colony under our management through that just for education. So we'll move on to number three, which comes from James, James out of Pilot Point, Texas. Two questions. How many frames of old black comb would you put inside a 10 deep frame hive trap to maximize the attraction? I could see where too many might be unattractive since it limits their space. The other question is melting down old wax with moth infested comb and reusing it in a hive. Aren't there pesticides that have accumulated in the old comb? Yes, there are. In fact, all of the comb, the honeycomb, especially brood comb, because it lasts a very long time, brood cycles through it, we keep it the longest, and uh, it ends up getting a, a heavy concentration of agricultural uh, pesticides. In fact, when we sent all our wax samples out, nobody had clean wax, and it's because your bees get exposed to pesticides, they bring it back, and what do they do? They're making honey, or they're walking on the comb, or the other bees that are making beeswax still end up cycling that into the honey and the comb just gets darker and darker and darker. And I would not reuse that comb. By the way, once it's been used for brood so long, rendering it into wax is just a huge pain. And the amount of wax that you get out of it is very little and the quality is very low. So I just scrape those off and get rid of it. But for the first part of the question, how many frames of old black comb? And this is a topic, by the way, that people that set out uh, traps and do this evaluation, if you, because you have a tendency, I'm one of those people, five frame uh, nucleus box being used as a trap. And by trap, we mean to attract swarms. So, which is coming right up. We're gonna have a lot of swarms flying around. I just know it, colonies are so big. Watch the end. You're going to see bees mass on the front of my 
Layens hives, they're all over the Long Langstroth hive. The population of bees is incredibly high. I don't know what's going to go on now. Now those are big colonies, by the way, that apparently had enough resources because even while that observation hive was starving itself out, the Layens hive uh, was covered with uh, a traffic jam, which by the way, the traffic jam subsided by like 4.30 in the afternoon. But from like one to two, it was wall to wall bees on the front of that hive. Lots going on. Anyway, um, I had a tendency to go ahead and put five frames in the five frame nucleus box that was used to attract a swarm. And keep in mind that the scouts have already been out looking around that should not uh, curb you from putting a trap out if you haven't already, I would do it. Some people put out uh, traps with no frames in them. And the reason is just uh, as the person that posted this question here, James said, he doesn't want it to seem uh, full. So how many frames would we put up? So here's the purpose of the frames, in my opinion, and the, the way I do it. So there's no real wrong way. Some ways can tend to work better than others. I put at least two deep frames in there that have drawn comb on them. You have the option to leave the rest of the spaces in that hive empty if you want to. And the reason is just uh, what the question is. Would it seem like it has much more open space and therefore more appealing to the scouts that are looking for places for their colonies to move into? And uh, there is some truth to that. So I put two deep frames in there. And the reason for that is I want the bees to be on the frames. I don't want them to start building comb on the inside of the inner cover, which is, you know, these are migratory covers that are on these traps. So it's the only cover. And you go to pry it up, and if you don't have any frames in there, where are they building their comb? Right on the interior of the lid. So now you're, you've got a pickle on your hands. So, always put in a couple of frames, and one frame doesn't seem to be enough, because that's a really tiny cluster of bees that would be on that. If you put two deep frames in there, then you've got enough to occupy the bulk of the bees that are inside, and that's very helpful when you take down your swarm trap and you go to move them into another hive, which will ultimately be their permanent home. So try to put the frames in there that match the boxes that you're going to try to put them in. So if you have deep root boxes as the bottom box in all of your hives and even your nucleus hives, it probably is preferred that you transfer them into that, uh, you wanna match whatever those are. So if your nucleus hives are deeps, all of mine are, uh, then you want deep frames in your traps as well. So they're compatible. So you don't have to do any adjusting. And uh, yeah, that works. So two of them are what I prefer. Maybe uh, if you've had success or found out that one configuration was better than another, please share that down in the comment section below the video. I'd like to hear about uh, what your methods have been, what you found to be the most successful. So question number four. This comes from Ellen from Missouri. Doesn't say what city. I was looking for an update on the Apame Ergo Beehive. The swarm didn't stay around. Now what? Did they requeen or did they make it through winter? Thank you. Okay, so we started with Apame hives last year, late in the year, and we hived swarms in them. And so that uh, held back a lot of the things that bees, when they're hived late in the season, that they would have done. One of those is propolizing open crevices and vents and things like that. 
Apame Hives, and there's videos of this. I'll probably link one of them if you want to see it because it shows the whole process, how I got the, the swarm and put it in. You can see how many bees there were. Uh, it looked like they absconded, so which is really weird. At the end of the year, when bees abscond, their chances of survival, any swarming, by the way, their chances of survival are extremely low, depending on the environment that you have, how many large old trees there are in the woodlands near your home, and where your bees can move in. So if you've got sparse pickings when it comes to places for your bees to occupy cavities, then when they abscond, they're really insulting you. They really don't like where you put them. And uh, there were a bunch of emergency queen cells which didn't develop right. Uh, they left, the biggest colony departed. So we had three Apame hives going into winter last year. And uh, they have those top vents and uh, the vents that go through the perimeter of the feeders that are built in, integrated feeders. And as soon as I thaw that, as soon as I thaw that, as soon as I saw that, I was uh, immediately concerned because that's a lot of venting going through there. It even goes through um, where your candy would go and things like that. And then there's venting through the outer cover which you can't control. So I actually spoke with the APAME representative that was at the Western or the West Virginia conference that I went to, and they're going to come up with a membrane that you have the option to put in there. So kind of like a thick trash bag piece that would go in there that would cover those vents if you didn't want that. So that saves them having to reconfigure the roof. And that sounded like a pretty good idea. Uh, the thing is, the Epame uh, hives would have worked fine. And I think because the bees were in the progress, they were in the process of sealing up those little vent holes in those feeder inserts. So if they'd had more time, if we had warmer weather for a longer period, they would have finished sealing all of those up. And then we wouldn't have to even worry about uh, sealing off airflow through the top of that. This year, what am I going to do different with the Apame hives? So I've got three dead outs there. One I knew already because they were done before we even went into winter. Had 22 colonies, dropped to 20, and that was because it was the other two Apame hives. And uh, they just didn't make it. So this year, I'm going to close up those top vents. I'm also, I've also added the seven frame nucleus hive that they have because it has the ability to put partitions in it. So we could get two three-frame nukes in there. It's going to be really cool when we're trying to deal with um, bees that are already making queen cells. And I expect to find some. when, uh, If not this weekend when we look at them, next week when it hits the 70s, this is the time to go through each and every hive. So for those of you who are not subscribed, you're going to want to subscribe so that you can see all those. You'll get the alerts. And uh, so we're going to look at those and uh, we're going to see how they wintered and we're going to see how they're arranged now. And if I come across queen cells, I'm going to be pulling the existing queens out and I'm going to pull them with minimal resources. All I'm trying to do is delay their plan to swarm. So if I pull the queen and some brood and I put them in that nucleus hive, so that's just going to be a fun tool. And I'm going to put it out in that bee yard. So we have two bee yards here. And uh, those will be in the vicinity of the, um, the lands and the long lang and things like that. Now, here's the problem. My lands hives, if you're pulling frames out of those, you need more lands hives. So I do. I need more lands hives, apparently. So 
and there are Leyen's nucleus hives, there are Leyen's traps, for those of you who want to look those up. Um, in fact, you could share down in the video description what your favorite Leyen's resources are. In other words, who's selling the best gear? Uh, Bearsfield Bees sells really good equipment, but of course I looked them up and shipping was more than the hive itself, so that was it for that one. But if you're in West Virginia somewhere, they get my vote for really outstanding hives. And uh, that's pretty much it. So the Long Langstroth hive, very versatile, super loaded, easy to do. So anyway, we're going to pull those frames. We're going to keep them small. And uh, we're going to count on heading them off before they swarm. So that's the layered part of it, right? I also have my QMP noodles already out, zipped to tree branches. For those of you who go, what's QMP? That's queen mandibular pheromone. It's a synthetic pheromone. All it does is makes the bees think that that's a branch that has been uh, occupied by queens before and uh, swarms before, but it's that queen pheromone that attracts them to these branches. I don't know how many of you uh, read the American Bee Journal, but uh, there's a lot of information about uh, the infidelity of these worker bees. And Randy Oliver published his many part study that showed that, man, the, um, the drift is the term, but when bees just decide to go to another colony for no apparent reason and take up residence there. These bees are doing that in huge numbers. It's really, it's something that uh, I was onto last year because I realized if I'm just hanging a synthetic pheromone on a railing or something, and I get a couple of pounds of bees, these bees are jumping ship. They were supposed to go home. These are foraging bees that just decided because they happen to fly through a pheromone stream, oh, I'm going to go over there. And then they collected. I left a noodle on the railing of my Way to Be Academy building. It came back and it looked like a swarm moved in. And all it was was a bunch of bees that followed the scent of a queen mandibular pheromone without a real queen being there. And he ended up with all these bees. What did I do with them? I took that noodle and I put it on the landing board of a colony that I wanted to get reinforced. But what's interesting about Randy Oliver's study is that this is why, for those of you who put scales and the ability to electronically monitor the weight of your colonies, these colonies uh, gain weight, physical weight, from the numbers of bees that occupy them as well as the resources that they bring in. If they're doing a lot of this weird drifting, you can end up with 20% of your colony having come from other colonies. I don't know that anyone knows for sure why bees decide to drift to other colonies. If it's because they flew too far and foraged too far and loaded up on too many resources, so there's too much pollen, too much nectar, and instead of going all the way home, they just got a whiff of another colony and went and landed on that landing board and moved right in. There go all those resources. Bees that show up with groceries, pollen, and nectar are welcome into the hive. The guard bees don't even stop them. So here we get this weird influx of bees. And it was really prominent last year when we saw those uh, drone rushes that were occurring when a virgin queen flew out, did her mating flight, came back. And when she came back, she brought a bunch of drones with her. But guess what else? A bunch of worker bees moved in too. And if we had a scale on that, you would have seen an instantaneous weight gain on that colony when all these bees moved in. They just like the way that queen smells and they joined up. Very interesting. 
So if you get the American Bee Journal, or if your club subscribes to it, or if you've got friends that have it, check out the latest article by Randy Oliver and see what's really going on and how far away they're drifting. All your bees in a row, you know, what goes on? I don't know. But uh, we get bees moving in and out of colonies all the time, and that's why with these Apame hives, that was a long story, wasn't it? When the question is about the Apame and what I plan to do. What I plan to do is repopulate the hives early, like this week. And uh, so here's the thing. Um, when there's no queen in a hive, so they've lost their queen and they didn't replace her. Now I've got a queenless colony. Uh, before laying worker even kicks in, usually is about three weeks, because even worker bees have ovaries and they activate their ovaries in the absence of a queen. When the queen's there and the queen mandibular pheromone is present, this ovary development is suppressed. That's part of a uh, colony like that where social insects practice eusocial behavior, which means that even though these worker bees could activate their ovaries and produce eggs that end up producing drones 99.99% of the time, um, what they do is, uh, in the absence of that pheromone, they can do that. But if you put in queen mandibular pheromone, the synthetic in that hive, they will not uh, activate their ovaries. Another thing that that does, it serves as a pheromone glue that keeps these bees there. This is why I think once colonies that lose their queens uh, don't do very well, because I also think that those that are foraging lost their incentive to reinforce that colony. I think they're just drifting over to other colonies by the thousands. That's why you end up opening these pitiful hives that are queenless, and then there's just a core group of workers in there. Who knows what they're doing? They're not doing any infrastructure or anything else because their incentive to do that by, by pheromone is gone. So interesting stuff is going on. And then the minute you put a queen in there, all of a sudden you get this population burst. Now what's going on? The pheromones go out there and passerby bees just decide to move in and join up. Bees are weird. That's all I can say. It's interesting. Read the Randy Oliver study. Okay. Question number five comes from Marty from Somerton, South Carolina. I'm in my second year of beekeeping. The first year I started my bees were fairly calm and docile. This year, back in February, I had a defibrillator pacemaker put in due to heart failure. It seems now that my bees are more aggressive towards me. Even the two nukes I put in this spring were aggressive. Could it be that the defibrillator is connected to my cell phone via Bluetooth is making them act this way? Okay. Now, on the face of that, you might say, pacemaker, that's not going to get your bees' attention at all. Do we need to get into the studies? This is a very simple way to work out backyard science, right? Pacemaker is connected to the phone. That's interesting too. I don't know if you're familiar with Ross, Con Ross Conrad from Vermont. He's a you know natural beekeeper, you know holistic beekeeper. He did an article about electronics in hives and how detrimental that is to bees, or potentially how bad it is to bees. But we don't have to understand um, the interference that electronics may cause to your bees. We know that there's a really old uh, study that came out that was a university study that people took wrong. I think it was people that really wanted to say 
electronics are bad for bees. They put a cell phone in a beehive and then people took it like wildfire and said uh, that uh, bees couldn't handle being with a cell phone, that it disrupted them, they absconded and all this other stuff. Uh, the study was a cell phone that was put in there that was on vibrate. In other words, every time you received a call, it would vibrate the hive. It was nothing to do with the electronics of the cell phone. But uh, so the study was misinterpreted by people who surprisingly decided to tailor the results to suit themselves and the narrative that they wanted to put out there. But this is a very easy scenario. So what do we have? We've got the bees that are being kept, uh, a perceived change because somebody has a pacemaker and a cell phone Bluetooth connection to the pacemaker. So it's all very interesting. How would you test that out to see if the bees were reacting to it? Mm -hmm. You're bringing someone else who does not have a pacemaker. Bring in that person to work the bees in the same way that uh, Marty works the bees and find out if they're still repelled by that person. In other words, do they react offensively to the new person too? Or are they suddenly all calm and laid back, easy to work, everything's happy-go-lucky? Wow. If they are all passive all of a sudden when the pacemaker and the cell phone with Bluetooth is no longer in their proximity, then uh, bring a third person in and try it again. Do several of those. And then, of course, do this on the time of day, at the time of day, when uh, the bees are less defensive. Nice sunny day, like today, uh, middle of the afternoon when most of the bees are out foraging, that are foraging, and uh, kind of look at the way the guards are doing. And then so find out if we have a passive response from one or two other people, and then send Marty back in to go in and see what's going on. Or let Marty join in at the last minute and see if they get a reaction to Marty. Bees remember people. They remember faces. And if they've had a bad experience with an individual, then uh, they do tend to sometimes target people. The other thing is, let's remember that bees are pheromone-based. So I would ask Marty if uh, any chance that there was a change in cologne or shampoo or any other thing that might bring a scent to the colony that they're unfamiliar with as well. So we want to go through the process of elimination and uh, see what's going on. And if it turns out that they are only angry at Marty, we would uh, start to say, wow, maybe there is something to the electronics. We know that uh, studies have been done on the electromagnetic energy of high power lines. And uh, because a lot of people tend to want to put their beehives in those uh, utility access areas. So it's a clearance from the woods. And then there's high power lines. They found out that bees, although they couldn't say that there was a physical detriment to it, bees did not like that energy uh, that was going between the power lines and the ground. And so what they did is they spent less time there. In other words, they moved through it fast. They wouldn't forage flowers and plants that were in that direct vicinity where you could detect uh, the energy from the power lines to the ground. And that's some very cool science right there, by the way. But uh, Bluetooth, electronics, there's a lot of electronics and a lot of beehives out there. There are broodminders and everything else, which is, I think, uh, is what was at the center of Ross Conrad's uh, report on that and speculation about uh, potential uh, negative impacts on your bees, brood, things like that. So... Um, that's the test I recommend, and I hope that Marty will try it and give us feedback on what the response was, because if they're just cranky, they're just cranky. 
but unless you can provide the variables in there, uh, then we won't know. So try that out. That's the last question for the day, so I'm already in the fluff section. Sorry for speeding along, but I have things to do. I have bees waiting on me out there. So for the plan of the week this week, get your swarm traps up if they're not already up there. You do not have to put them at 12 feet, although that's a preferred height. You do not need to put them at 200 yards, 200 meters away from your apiary, although that is the demonstrated preference for the bees. It doesn't mean that they won't move into an empty hive sitting right in your apiary. It's happened to me several times. So providing the space for them at a, a height, if you're elderly and uh, you're not comfortable climbing ladders, I don't blame you. Don't put them up so high. Put them on your picnic table if you want to at the edge of the woods. So choose your location well. Try to put them in a place where the bees would feel protected, where there's a clear flyway to your hive. 10, uh, 10 frame deep is about the standard. Dr. Thomas Seeley did a great job uh, evaluating what spaces, uh, the size of the space that bees prefer. Don't have any upper venting, have a single entrance. Face your entrance to the south or southeast. And uh, put one or two frames of uh, really old brood comb in there. If you've got bits and scrapings of propolis and things like that, put those in at the bottom. If you want to use uh, lemongrass oil or something like that, Here's my cautionary thing about the lemongrass oil. Bees, by the way, find previously occupied cavities very easily. These scouts are finding old comb and stuff like that. They're going to check out the colony. They're going to check out the cavity. Um, but you can entice them from farther away by using things like Swarm Commander. Uh, but you have to use that sparingly. If you do it so strong, if you're walking up downwind from that hive and you can smell the swarm commander two or three feet away from it, you overdid it. And if you overdo it, you might draw some bees to the entrance, but they're not going to spend much time there. So just a trace amount, just a little bit, is all you need to do. And propolis and bits of beeswax laying on the ground. Another thing that I'd like to suggest for people, if you've got a bunch of this old garbagey beeswax laying around in a bucket somewhere or in a pail or something, uh, recommend you melt that up, go to the tree branch on the tree that you most likely collect your swarms. Uh, through the years, the, my bees use two different trees over and over again. So that's where I have my queen mandibular pheromone uh, lures, which is sold as temp queen from better bee you want to go there it's five dollars you have to keep them in the freezer but here's an alternative uh, you can take your old beeswax and the cruddy stuff you know and you can melt it up and you can get an old paintbrush that you don't care about and you can actually paint a tree branch one that's strong enough to support several pounds don't put it on some little thin mamby pamby tree branch that goes to the ground as soon as you put any weight on it uh, so you paint that on there and what that does is it makes it smell like bees and then it will attract the um the bees that are swarming that'll be their intermediate bivouac location so you need to freshen that up every now and again so those of you who are doing inspections now collect your scrapings put them in a bucket and uh, melt them down and create your own little area that's going to attract the bees when they're swarming and that will help you out so that's my goal see my three layers are number one try to find out if the colony is making preparations for swarming and that means queen cells. Some of you have been writing me about queen cups. What the heck is a queen cup? They think they're queen cells, but they're not. 
So what happens is it looks like the little cap on an acorn. And it's made out of wax, and it's usually along the bottom third or the bottom 20% of a brood frame. And people see that and go, oh my gosh, my bees are making preparations to swarm. Look at that. No, they're not. It's a placeholder. And a queen cup does not become a queen cell unless an egg gets put in it. Then someone else wrote me and said, so when they need an egg in that, are the workers grabbing the egg with their mandibles and carrying it over and sticking it in there? Or is the queen actually laying an egg in there on her way out the door? Well, as far as I know, and I can't say with 100% certainty, but as far as I know, uh, the bees have not been able to carry eggs and park them in other cells of their choosing, that it has been the queen that actually lays an egg in preparation for her departure. So keep in mind, the bees allow her to keep eggs where she puts them, or they can remove them if they don't want them there. So a queen cup becomes a queen cell when she lays an egg, and then they'll start showing attention to that. So it doesn't mean when you come across queen cups that you should be smashing them with your hive tool or your fingers and stuff like that, because they'll just build another one. You just wasted their time. Leave them there. They don't mean anything. So uh, what else? And, and this is the time to make splits, by the way. So this coming week. Why? Because there's lots of drones. And if we're going to do walkaway splits, we're letting them make their own replacement queens. But if they're if you're doing your split because you're seeing queen cells, there's not going to be a lot of time between when you make your split and the queens emerge from those cells. Hopefully they kill off the competing queens and the best queen wins and then she flies out and comes back. So that's coming up. But if you're making queens yourself intentionally right now, uh, it's a good time to do it because drones are everywhere. What else is going on? Uh, partner your might counts with inspections. So if you're taking apart the hive anyway, we want to limit the number of times that we invade our bees. So bring your sugar shake kit out there with you, powdered sugar, the whole thing. And uh, when you pull apart the hive and you're doing those inspections and you find out there's no queens, do your mite counts and find out what's going on there. See if you have to treat. Sugar shake is great. You won't kill anything. Feed light hives. This is what we talked about today, the very first thing. One-to-one -one sugar syrup, hive alive in it. The dose for hive alive is one gallon per hive. Add supers. Seven out of eight frames are full of honey and nectar right now, and there's no room to grow. Put that super on up there before they're filled all the way, and uh, stop feeding once the supers are on. The other thing is if you're too late, you open the hive, the top box is wall the wall honey are ready. In fact, when you pull the cover off, there's a bunch of honey leaking out because they even connected the backs of their frames to the inner cover. And now when you pull it apart, honey dripped everywhere. Now you have to under super. That's because they can often perceive that box of honey, if it's full, as the top of the hive. They don't go beyond it. So when you put your next uh, box on there to super it, they may or may not go up there and continue to develop, but they are inspired to do that. If you pull that heavy, full honey super off, put your next medium underneath of it and put that back on top. Now they're work what's in between there. So knowing how full they are. And again, when you put those supers on and they're full of honey, stop feeding. You wouldn't be feeding them anyway. Because keep in mind that sugar syrup, that emergency feed that we just did for that observation hive and that's the one that I recommended for our first uh, topic today 
um, those are colonies that aren't making it anyway. Those are not going to get uh, honey supers. My observation hives, I don't uh, harvest honey from them ever because we just let them go through normal cycles. Um, so add supers. Look for swarm cells. Be ready to split. We already talked about that. Water stations. If you haven't put them out yet, put your water stations out in consistent locations that you're going to keep water in all summer long. My water wall is underway. My concrete showed up. I have pavers. I have blocks. And I have something for my water wall for my bees this year, which is going to be in the middle of one of my apiaries. It's a, it's a horseshoe-shaped apiary. And I always had, you know, cinder blocks and stuff like that. I had bird bath in the middle of it, and I just let water spray. Did you know there are nozzles that go on the end of your hose that's called a fogger, fog nozzles? And they come like they'll, some of them do a quarter gallon a minute, something. So they come with different ratings. But these are the things that are at amusement parks. For those of you who go to amusement parks, I don't because there's people there. But listen, if you get these foggers, um, they put out a mist of water into the air. So even on the hottest days, it provides a cooling area. And the cool part of that is that uh, when I put together my block wall and I'm going to get field stone and all of that, it's going to look ugly, but it's going to be functional and it's going to be cool. So I have my fogger, fog nozzle, and that's going to be there and it's just going to keep everything damp right under it. And uh, the bees will come to that and they won't have any open water pools that they could risk drowning in. So it's just going to have a cascade of different surfaces of water that are very shallow that can't drown a bee. And the fogger is going to keep that moisture going and we'll turn it on in the daytime and we'll turn it off at night. And I think that's going to be cool. So look into the fog nozzles if you haven't already. And they come at different ratings. And uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So you set up your water station and it's consistent. Uh, and that way, hopefully, through primacy, you're going to keep them away from your neighbor's pools because swimming pools are not active yet. People haven't pulled their covers off for those who have them. My pool is a pond, so they're already at the pond, not in any great numbers, because right now it's so wet in our area that there are standing pools of water on the landscape. So the bees have no problems finding water right now, but that's going to change. And when it does, they need consistent water sources that you can provide. So why not make a really cool looking water feature that makes people go, hey, why does that look like smoke over there? And then you just say that's water because it's a fog nozzle because I know things and I have cool stuff. So they're not that expensive. So I want to thank you for being here with me today and for watching and hopefully you learned at least one new thing. And uh, if you're still here, now's the time to go out and make sure that you don't have a hive that starved itself during this cold weather event that we just had. And if you're not a beekeeper yet, but you've got friends who are, don't forget to tell them Let's look at those landing boards and see what's going on. And if you've got a colony that's really large that should be active and isn't, it's time to intervene with some sugar syrup if you haven't already. So thanks for watching and I hope you enjoy the lengthy closing sequences of slow motion bees with the audio that is taken from the bees in flight and everything else. It should be really entertaining for you. So thanks a lot. Have a fantastic weekend.